0: In this episode, Alex had issues with her internet and fell off after one question, so we unfortunately just had to proceed without her. Um, So it's just Gavin and me. Sorry about that. This week, we have with us uh, to talk about Luddism and what we should think about Luddism, Gavin Mueller, who is a lecturer in media studies at the University of Amsterdam. Welcome, Gavin. Thank you. Uh, So um, we, you know, we'll be talking about chapter 14, which is a very long chapter. It talks about different dimensions of kind of legal and extra legal politics in uh, British working class history. But... You know, when we launched the podcast, you, I think you replied to us on Twitter, actually, Gavin, like you have, you have to, you have to let me guest on the letters in week. And so we're now at that week. And I, I have an inkling, but I'm curious just like why, what letters it means for you that leads you to respond in that way.
1: Yeah. Um, well, uh, I guess to self-promote a bit, I yeah, have do a it. book coming. Thank you. <laughs> I will. Uh, I have a, I have a book, uh, kind of a short a shorter book uh, coming out on Luddism uh, with Verso next year. Um, you know, pandemic situation. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. It's a little things are a little dicey in the publishing trade, apparently. But um, but uh, where I kind of take the concept and uh, with the with its origins with the Luddites, and I think about um, how kind of. Uh, technology plays uh, a role in worker struggles and how worker struggles are often pitched against um, technology in various ways. And what that actually means is I think that um, in many cases it's seen as kind of incidental or it's seen as a sort of uh, backwards looking kind of uh, uh, tendency um, in in struggles. Um, And uh, I attempt to try to take it seriously. And um, I think actually one you know, really big inspiration for my perspective on that is uh, E.P. Thompson, who was part of a kind of uh, revisionist trend uh, to kind of really uh, take seriously the ideas behind um, what was going on and to see um, the, the, the Luddites as something besides a kind of, you know, hopeless uh, you know, sort of rear guard, kind of backwards-looking uh, reaction, perhaps noble but doomed, um, and to actually kind of take it seriously as, uh, you know, something real, uh, as, um, and and also as a kind of germinus of, in in many ways, uh, the kind of modern workers' movement that um, that people are familiar with, um, and so what I try to do in the book is I try to Take that thread and then trace it through, and I also look at um, the history of Marxist theory, which is typically not very sympathetic to uh, Luddism, or or is, it tends to be uh, uh, certainly the dominant strains of the workers' movement. The mark and the uh, mar- uh, the Marxist uh, edge of the workers' movement was tended to be very embraced technology, um, but there, it's kind of a, a fun project of kind of recovering sort of more heretical uh, strains of 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 Marxist thought uh, throughout the past 200 years of people who question that, um, who tried to do, go a different way, um, because I think that there's a kind of relevance now um, in our current moment in thinking about um, not just opposing technology for the sake of opposing it, but also to think about what that what that what the, the practices that um, are involved in that opposition. The ideologies behind it and how that can start to form a kind of uh, a kind of texture or a strata that um, other kind of practices and other kinds of uh, social forms and even organization are built off of. And again, this, I think, comes really a lot of it you can find in this chapter. In uh, the making of the English working class, I don't know if if E.P. Thompson always uses the same vocabulary that I would. He's very much more focused on on consciousness and the cultures around it. But I think there's a way you can kind of read it where um, where you see some of this the organizational manifestation coming out of it as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, he calls Luddism this transitional moment, right? So it's both backward looking in the way you describe, but also um, taking as this sort of moment of repression um that pe- workers were facing at the time before trade unionism was really quite fully legal and so it's sort of giving the sort of first inkling of what that disciplined organization would look like right he emphasizes the organizational discipline and sort of serious thinking that was going on with the luddites in their strategy
1: yeah i mean the the what what's really impressive is the um is their ability to sort of function, uh, to kind of lock down information, to be totally secretive. Um, and of course, this is spelled out in the chapter. You know, unions were illegal. Uh, there were, the spies were rife. Uh, it was really, all in all, a really rough time, uh, really just a terrible, terrible time. Uh, but the state was extremely uh, vigorous in cracking down on all forms of dissent. Um, and there's so there's a longer uh, uh, you know stretching back and you guys have probably gone through some of this a bit um, uh, uh, longer traditions of kind of secret organizing underground organizing that that Luddism um, takes part in. Um, it was actually Eric Hobsbawm who wrote uh, one of his early articles uh, that was fairly influential. Was was kind of um, reread the Luddites' uh, rebellion as rational and and really from the perspective of of saying you can't expect the kinds of strikes and orderly negotiations and, and nonviolent practices um, at this moment in time because the the class had not been organized. There was no there was no uh, historical tradition there. Um, so ju- not just it wasn't just the fact that there was a state crackdown, but you know the, the 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 class has to doesn't use this language. This is the language I like to use. A uh, kind of more uh, autonomous marxist language but the, the class hadn't really composed itself fully it was in that that process of doing that um and so this is where this um kind of famous term collective bargaining by riot um i don't know if i want to be so like rational actor as as he is in that article but i think um, but that's precisely his argument right is like if you want to look at a worker's struggle from 200 years ago it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be rowdy it's gonna be there's gonna be violence there's gonna be you know, nasty letter writing. Um, I mean, that's to me the kind of starting point, right, is to think about how does... So you have all these uh, textile workers, uh, croppers, weavers, and, and and so on. And you want to, you know, they're all of a sudden under duress. They're under duress for a lot of reasons. Uh, but in particular, they're under duress from these... Um, uh, not just the new forms of machines, but the way that the owners of the machines are using this as leverage to break up uh, sort of prior agreements that their guilds had arranged with the the, the British state. Which stretch back, in some
0: cases, hundreds of years, right? I mean, right, Thompson, right? Thompson talks about when he uses the language of transitional, uh, the adjective transitional, he's the past Thing is, it kind of tu- goes back to the Tudor period. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these are these are long-standing uh, uh, agreements, right, and that are essentially being torn up in front of them um, very ruthlessly. And it's and it's immediately clear that it's the machines are a part of this process because the machines mean you don't need uh, as many workers and you don't need as skilled workers. Uh, so these people whose livelihood has been protected, who have these like long standing agreements who have built entire, uh, villages, entire districts, entire cultures, uh, for, for generations, um, around this trade who are proud of their trade. Uh, you know, British, they, they're like, we're, we make great textiles, we make great socks, um, we're the envy of the world. Uh, are overnight, right? Almost overnight, are are being are being uh, done away with, uh, and and you know they don't start smashing things. They start by you know the normal process of you know calling their politicians and saying, hey, what's going on? You need to uh, honor these agreements that we've had and, and come down on it. Um, but the kind of conjuncture of the moment means that the, the parliament's really not. Uh, amenable to this. In, in part, there's a, this kind of new discipline of political economy that that they're very influenced by Adam Smith, who's basically like don't protect trade, um, but also ideas of Thomas Malthus, which is like if people are starving, that's just something that happens. Uh, you also have other matters that they're concerned with. They're concerned with the war with Napoleon. Uh, they have uh, there's just massive kind of civil unrest and a number of domestic disturbances. Um, happening and so the, the the moral of the story is the British government is just doesn't want to hear it. Uh, they they're just they say too bad you know we're not going to honor these agreements anymore
0: yeah he Thompson writes on 544 um, the workers felt that the bonds, however ideal which bound them to the rest of the community in reciprocal obligations and duties, were being snapped one after another. they were being thrust beyond the pale of the Constitution.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is where like one of the kind of interesting or or something I didn't really expect when I started, you know, investigating this was, you know, one massive part of the Luddite movement was actually like writing letters to your to politicians. Uh, Sometimes they were kind of normal pleas. Sometimes they were they were violent threats. Uh, But but there was a there was a real acknowledgement that you you wanted to try to get the state um, on your side, uh, at least in the the, the the early phases of this, um, so um, uh, and when that didn't work, uh, then you know things went a little local, and you start seeing um, organizing against uh, uh, owners, basically. Um, and you have you have you have kind of small mill owners who might you know only have a few people working under them, and then you have like sort of massive like these kind of large factory. Um, They called them mills, but they were essentially kind of uh, early factories. Um, And and the Luddites were actually quite successful. Um, uh, You know, they would once the movement got going, uh, you have uh, people kind of who are who are already sort of conversant in these kind of underground techniques of secret oaths, secret societies, uh, kind of you know, skullduggery at night, uh, meeting in taverns and plotting and all of these things. They've already, a lot of people have some knowledge and some experience of that, right? Um, This is what I always appreciate from E.P. Thompson is this kind of, um, you know, often articulating the language of like experience, but there's a kind of culture here. And by culture, I mean there's a sort of historical sedimentation of particular social practices centered around specific kinds of organization, right? Ways that people have been coming together, um, conduct that they form and meanings they they kind of insert behind that. And
0: there's a kind of whole interesting methodological passage at the beginning of the chapter, um, where you know, he f- first has to deal with the fact that, you know, the sources are clouded and they're clouded on purpose, right? That you can't actually access a lot of this directly because of the secrecy of it. But he makes this point um, that I think, echoes what you're saying here where he says that um, you know, in the context of the war and in this increasingly repressive state, um, spying is ubiquitous, but spying is much easier on political activity than it is on industrial activity mm-hmm. uh, because groups of political activists might only know each other in the context of the Jacobin club that they're in or whatever, right. whereas workers know each other socially in, in an everyday way. And so a spy in their midst is much stranger and easier to detect and so the, that that's one of the mechanisms he says by which repression moves sorry uh, rather radicalism moves from the kind of political to the industrial
1: right i mean think about it this way right like if you if you show up to your dsa meeting every week or every month you know you're there's going to be a bunch of people there you've never met and that's normal and you don't think that much of it um, but if all of a sudden you're like at work and you're in the break room and there's this guy you've never seen before and you don't know what he's doing there, right? And he's you're like, like oh, "Don't you uh, want to kill the
0: boss?" I was thinking you would be very cool to kill the boss.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so it's just it's harder. I mean, and these are again, these are people who have lived. In, not only are they do they work together, but they've grown up together, right? This is like um, these are like long standing communities, right? So it's they're very difficult to infiltrate. Uh, in that way. Right. So. So. Um, so, yeah, to me, this is like, uh, you know, you also see it's a very it's I think it's a hard one. One way I describe it in the book um, is in this kind of Marxist language. of you're looking at a moment of industrial organization uh, where people have in many ways compared to what we have now, a lot more sort of autonomy over their work. Um, many of these uh, weavers they owned their own tools in many cases uh, they had a lot of control over who they worked with over how the work was done over how much the work was done they had a lot of they had a lot of free time in many cases uh, and uh, they were still operating under capitalism they were producing commodities they were selling those commodities to capitalists who would sell them again and you know, it was part of the entire um, uh, cotton trade um, and, and all of this. Uh, but but there was a, there was not direct control. This is in Marxist terms of formal subsumption. Right. Um, and essentially what they're resisting in many ways is the increasing control in particularly through new technologies that would undermine this kind of autonomy that they have. Uh, that would uh, lead to a situation where they, they didn't control the pace of work. They didn't control the inputs and the outputs of their productive process. They might not own, the workers would not own um, their tools. Uh, they would be working under someone else's roof. Um, and all of that was designed to kind of uh, to break apart these long-standing social bonds that were the grounds for resistance. To uh, to this kind of uh, up and coming generation of 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 capitalists, um, who absolutely—I mean, there's some great passages in there where it's it's like the best like primary source documentation of like formal subsumption, trying like the people trying to push to real subsumption. Like, we have to stop these weavers. They're not letting us like have enough kids at the workplace. You know, they're like really annoyed by this. uh, because they, the, the 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 capitalists don't have control over it, um, and so so this is the struggle is not uh, is is over precisely this is over control uh, of of the work. It's not. I think it's fair to say it's not necessarily an anti capitalist struggle um, in this moment. Um, and and uh, but uh, uh, but at the same time, you know, I think that. Um, we have to take any kind of struggle, uh, especially one that um, has such historical resonance that, ter- that the terms are passed down today uh, seriously. Right. Uh, and this is again, this is what what Hobbsbaum and, and Thompson try to do is to say, you know, it's it's not very useful to to stand in the present moment and kind of, um, you know, do, do be a Monday morning quarterback over the Luddites. And, uh, you know, you, you didn't really check all my boxes for 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 a workers' struggle, um, that that what they did in that moment was was uh, something very impressive. Um, and also, um, I mean, and what I want to su- suggest is something that we have things to learn from.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the the striking thing for me reading this now was how it, I, in a moment when even the kind of most conventional forms of economic organization in the workplace are, you know, in this country faced with increasing repression. Um, The quality of kind of ironclad solidarity that the Luddites were able to mobilize, obviously it's not produced overnight, right? As you, as you said, it depends as Thompson elaborates, it depends on these very deep wells of everyday social solidarity at the level of the community. Um, but you read it and it's hard not to kind of envy it and try to think about how we might you know, generate something of that kind. Uh, you know, Thompson says on 506, it was notoriously difficult to obtain two witnesses among the men to swear to a union's existence. So when a group of workers are being prosecuted for forming a union, um, it's actually quite difficult for the prosecutor uh, to carry out, to enforce the combination acts because of the kind of universal norm that you just don't say a fucking word. Um, and there are stories like this all
1: throughout, throughout the chapter.
0: Um, yeah.
1: e- even, even when there's a, the, the, this notorious disastrous Luddite raid on one of the large mills and two, two of them are mortally wounded. So of course the authorities know who they are, right? Cause they're the guys laid up in bed with gunshot wounds. Um, even then those guys don't talk and they're, def- they're tortured, you know? Uh, so, um, it's one thing, you know, it's one thing to say we should, you know, have solidarity as a kind of moral value. It's another thing to say that, you know, solidarity and trust and those kinds of things are formed by sort of long-standing ties. But I also think, you know, to make it to bring it to the present day, to think about how we can recapture some of that magic. Right. You see, think about what kind of practices. Um, uh, that you engage in social practices. So with other people that might be the grounds for producing uh, these kind of remarkable forms of solidarity. And, and, and one thing that I think is the case is is when you when things get a little um, when they get a little gritty. Right. When you when you start to when you start to break things, when you start to sabotage things, when you start to, um, you know, you're not it's it's not just, you know, leveling grievances but you're actually saying, okay, we're going to take it to the next level. We're going to start um, uh, uh, breaking a machine. We're going to start throwing a wrench in the gum works, right? We're gumming things up, messing it up. Um, and I think that to, to pull off something like that requires courage, but, to, to, but it also becomes the grounds for thinking about how do we get away with it? How do we build this? Uh, and that's when people start trusting someone. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not to get too uh, autobiographical, but I know that uh, uh, I've been in situations that where uh, trust was formed when, I, you know, I was felt like I was going out on a limb, doing something maybe I, I that, that could have repercussions. Right. And that would have repercussions for other people I was around. Uh, and then it's like, well, you know, we're all in it um, and we you know, we 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 sink or we swim together. Uh, but but it's going to be together. Um, and I think that, to me, that was um, something that was a really kind of sort of motivating uh, kind of impulse in in what I wanted to think about with the Luddites and with with kind of this sort of militant opposition to machines. Not that you actually, not that you literally push back on technological development, although you can find interesting historical examples. Um, but, uh, but that it becomes the grounds for producing uh, solidarity through particular social practices in the workplace. Um, you know, People start to trust each other. People start to um, think about how they can push things forward. And this is something that's happened not just with the Luddites, but you, you can find that happening in various other times. I mean, some of your listeners might, if their parents were... Um, you know, working on the line in the '70s, you know, they, they could ask their parents, right? You know, like, hey, did you guys ever get into some stuff? Uh, and and I, you know, that, that those kinds of things were happening there too, right? Um, where people were. Um, you know, breaking the rules, we'll say, um, breaking other things as well, and and coming away with with bonds. Um, and and to me, that's that's something that is absolutely happening um, with the Luddites, and something that I think is becomes the kind of grounds for this kinds of solidarities that I think many of us recognize are essential for uh, for for really uh, impactful kind of worker or organizing.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we uh, in our I think it was our second episode, we interviewed a historian of riots in in early modern England who talked about how um, the logic of crowd action, you know, in a period slightly earlier than this, in the 1770s, 80s, 90s, the logic of crowd action, um, whose discipline Thompson emphasizes the key to the discipline is uh, how it enables the group to kind of locate the boundary, which is transgressive enough, right, that um, it can achieve an effect, but not so transgressive as it's going to get them all hung, right? Um, right. And that's not precisely the same thing as here in that they certainly would hang the Luddites if they could get a hold of them. Uh, and they, they make that very clear. But uh, thinking about that and this chapter together, it strikes me that what you're saying helps us think about how solidarity is iterative. The construction of solidarity is an iterative process, um and moments in that process involve individuals or group- or you know subgroups within the kind of larger group of workers or the working class or whatever it might be um taking risks right and sort of stepping out in some way and so much of the question of like working class strategy and organization is about who should do that when and how far um You know, Thompson has this line in here, which I loved, about the kind of organization of the Luddites. You know, are they just a mob or are they something more organized than that? On 576-77, he says, um, "...caught up in the minutiae of day-to-day reports, phlegmatic officers here, panic-stricken magistrates there, incredibly tortuous stories of espionage in another place, it is possible to doubt the reality of Luddism altogether." But if we stand back from the minutiae for a moment, we shall see that the conclusions of these authorities are as unlikely as the most sensational conspiracy theory of Luddism. Anyone who has conducted a raffle or organized a darts tournament knows that scores of men cannot be assembled at night from several districts at a given point, disguised and armed with muskets, hammers and hatchets, formed into line, mustered by number, marched several miles to a successful attack, to the accompaniment of signal lights and rockets, and all with the organization of a spontaneous college rag. Uh, and he kind of goes on like this. Um, and, you know, I, I, like, I tend to think, and I think Thompson tends to think that, or tends to suggest through most of the chapter, that the discipline that uh, is being described there pre-exists the moment. Sure, yeah. Right? Um, but I'd be curious to hear you more talk about, or talk more about kind of episodes or instances, either in this history or in later ones, where we can actually observe the kind of iterative dynamic that you're naming, where individuals step out and turn whatever pre-exists into something more.
1: The the iterative part is less, you know, creating something, you know, out of nothing. And it's more about discovering some things that were already there that were sort of unrecognized, right? So if you look at, when when the the when Taylorism started being imposed right um in uh the first so basically almost exactly a hundred years after the Luddites right you look at uh, the watertown arsenal um and uh, people, uh, you know, there's a union there. Um, there's there's existing forms of organization, but the the form that the the rebellion takes once these tail- these engineers come in and start telling everyone how to work is is it, it, I, I don't like the word spontaneous, but it appears to be spontaneous, right? And the reason I don't I'm uncomfortable with with, with spontaneity is because I, I think that it's if you if you if something appears spontaneous, you haven't kind of looked. Carefully enough, um, but that there's pre-existing bonds there and that also that you discover that, you know, kind of, you know, sometimes in when when things flare up, you discover like, OK, like these are the people that are going to walk off the job. Um, what happens is, is a guy rejects uh, to be timed. Right. Right. Um, he, he, you know, so the tailor, the ta- the scientific engineers want to come in. They want to time everyone's movement. They want to say, okay, it takes you this movement takes ten seconds. We need you to do it in eight seconds. They want to like completely control everyone total physically. Um, uh, and and needless to say, I mean, I think anyone can put themselves in that situation. It's not very pleasant. Um, it's extremely unpopular. These are also workers who have who. Who've, you know, f- have pride in their job. Many of them have worked there a while. Um, they also, you know, feel like they're, you know, this is like the biggest arsenal in, in the country at the time. Uh, and and so he just says no, and they fire him on the spot. And that's when they're like, then a a, a host of other molders are like, okay, we're we're you know, they they basically get together that night and they're like, we're not going to, we're we're also going to walk out. Um, and the it, night meeting, the night meeting is yeah, so key. Yeah, And and. Uh, uh, you know, that's what you want to do at a, after a hard day of creating armaments is go have, have a meeting with your coworkers. But, um, so, so they have this media and they, and they decide to walk out and actually similar to the Luddites, is they, they actually petition, uh, Congress and they're like, Hey, uh, you know, like, uh, of course, Congress is a little extra interested because this is armaments, right? This is, this is, they, they you know, they have a stake in it. Um, and and and, and uh, the workers are like, you know, yeah, we're, we're, this is not this is really not fair. Uh, and they actually have a kind of sympathetic uh, congressman who they end up doing an investigation uh, of Taylor and they kind of haul him in front of Congress. He has to testify. And he's um, he's like a really anxious guy uh, and he kind of has a meltdown. Um, and, and, and actually like never really recovers constitutionally. Like so this, they actually kind of, I'm not going to say they killed him, but he never, this, it's like so stressful. He's like a really like, uh, uh skittish guy, uh, strangely enough. Um, and, and he just kind of never recovers from, from having to testify in front of Kong.
0: That's so funny. Cause his, his narrative of himself is so much about like. You know, there I was on the shop floor. You know, and I said to the worker, "I bet you, I bet you, like, uh, want to make a little more money than you do, don't you?" Like the he's very he self presents in a very different way.
1: Yeah, he's. Uh, I mean, he's he's he's. A, he seems he's like a, an asshole. He. I mean, that I think is really what it comes down to. I mean, he's a, he's a child. A, this is a little bit not of e p Thompson but but i i find Tyope Taylor a fascinating character and important um when you're thinking about sort of industrial production and its organization uh he's a he's a child of privilege, goes to law school which is what you did at the time, botches it because again he's a, he's a he's a he's a nervous guy ends up becoming a a a foreman in a factory, and this is where he gets all his ideas um about um telling his coworkers, who hate him and he hates as well, um, so there's, because there's class differences, there's a lot of differences. He, he, he doesn't get along with many people. Um, and and so this is where he developed all his ideas. It, it turns out that probably a lot of his accounts are, are, are highly exaggerated. Other scientists went in, or uh, sociologists and engineers, and were like, I don't think this works. This is all just, this is kind of ad hoc. Uh, and It was really other a, a second generation of people who tried to make it more scientific. but it
0: does get it does get generalized, right absolutely, I mean the, yeah. the kind of ration, the rational kernel of it or whatever um, does get extra, it shows up everywhere after another generation.
1: His fundamental insight was right just the same uh, as the lenin. was you know the, that the owners have to control the workers, and they have to control them absolutely. Even even now, right? Like I, I will show students uh, like footage from a factory in like the late seventies or early eighties, and the workers are, you know, incredibly insubordinate. You know, they talk back, they swear, they're not, they don't like their job, they're not doing it with a smile, and it people are doing substances yeah, I mean, on the yeah, job. They're high, you know, they're drunk, yeah. uh, they're surly, whatever. Uh, but they're but they're they're openly antagonistic. And and students are really shocked. I mean, I think it's shocking, actually. You know, I mean, I didn't I've never worked in a factory uh, either, right? And and so so you know when you come from a world where everyone you know works in this kind of service occupation, where you know your your personal conduct is is uh, extremely important to doing your job, your emotional state, how you interact with customers, uh, when you see a shop floor where people are just. Um, you know, swearing at their managers, where they're, you know, trying to bully their managers, uh, uh, where they're just not doing what they're told. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it really hammers home how, how different that is. Um, but but this is and and so you know at the time like the factory owners were content to let workers figure it out themselves right as long as you know things were being done and it was it was Taylor was like you have to you have to control them and the way you control them is you create a kind of objective measure now these measures were actually quite arbitrary he just you know he's like Schmidt you know carried twice as much pig iron or you know it just makes the numbers up. Um, but it's an objective measure that you can then uh, evaluate performance by that is not determined by the workers. You know, management at this time didn't even really know how things were made. Uh, and once you've started to acquire that knowledge, you've started to research, you've started to really observe what the workers are doing, now you can take, now you can just objectify those not just in numbers, not just in sort of uh, benchmarks, timing, but you can start objectifying them technologically. Um, and and so this is becomes science you know Taylorism it becomes the kind of uh, course of research that will lead to generations of mechanization and automation that will essentially have a very similar effect of removing autonomy uh, from the workers of speeding up their productive processes of uh, of isolating them from one another right um, it, you know Marx, Already, kind of detected some of this in in capital. He's, he's, These machines are are weapons against working class organizing, uh, and he's talking about what we would consider extremely primitive machines. Um, so, but that's that's something that I think is 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 true in the history of, of productive technology. But there's an interesting paradox
0: that I'm curious what you think about, because um, it's true on one hand that these mach- you know the development of industrial mechanization are political weapons, in the way that you're saying, to disorganize and, um, you know, cow workers. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, as you were saying a moment ago, uh, the factory context itself, the context of um, large-scale machinery of production, still nonetheless gives you a different kind of working-class subjectivity, right, than, uh, you know, working in the service economy, for some reason, right, that uh, at least thus far, uh, something about the industrial workplace, which I don't think is a kind of an inherent feature necessarily, but something about its history, as compared to the history thus far of the the so-called service workplace, um, led to a different kind of confrontational posture.
1: It's different in many ways, right? So, I mean, a lot of people talk about like, you know, workers going from um, wanting to kind of seize the means of production to wanting to just not work at all, right? Do you want to work for yourselves like the Luddites wanted to do? Or do you just want to, you know, take this job and shove it? Um, I think that the continuity that I see there is, um, you know, you want, you want control over the way you conduct your day. I mean, what people didn't like about automation was it um you know we're talking 150 years and, and more after the luddites but but in in what you know what they didn't like about these large scale machines was that you sapped your your soul you felt you felt like a machine yourself one figure that i think is really interesting that's coming uh in the 19th century later than the luddites and and basically the generation after marx uh is william morris uh i don't want to He's not perfect, uh, but what I what I like about Morris is um, he really thinks about the texture of work, and I think this is something that's very important, and something that I don't. I think that people who are interested in workers and their fate, you know, yes, we need to think about wages and benefits and healthcare and time, but we also need to think about the the actual texture of work because this is often. Um, a really important motivating force in struggles a texture of struggle a texture of solidarity right if people are experiencing the same things um, and i don't always see that in evidence uh, but it's something that's very interesting to me um, and, and and it was also interesting to william morris and he said you wanted to you know he he said you don't want to just reject machines but it's about having machines that allow people to feel some kind of pride in their work, feel some kind of control, feel some kind of fulfillment. Uh, he was uh, a graphic designer and a craftsman. He was very into resurrecting archaic crafts, uh, very kind of, you know, quintessentially sort of English eccentric in a lot of ways, right? Um, but but what I and I think there's something to that. I don't want to overly romanticize it. I think you know things like you know just say straight up like let's reduce work hours is a good thing, right? That's in fact what Europe did and America didn't do in the moment when people were really rebelling against automation. Um, is that um, in in you know uh, there's it's like a classic case study as you compare like a British or an American factory to a Swedish factory a Norwegian factory and there you know you have workers councils people shift jobs people work less um, quite a lot less uh, in many cases and and get paid you know better than than their their. So there is something to that, but I also think there's something to the Morris idea, right? That they, that you want to have, you want to feel like a stake over your work, um, and and this is to me that was that was part of those rebellions against automation, um, and I think that is that carries forth. In fact, the Luddites, they didn't just. Rebel against um, these new machines because of their—they made a variety of sort of rhetorical appeals, and one one thing that they emphasized again and again was that the quality of the goods would be inferior, and how you know tragic that was. You would undermine this you know well-developed industry. This like you know the British cotton was, uh, you know, of course it's coming from it's it's a terribly exploitative chain, uh, and in some ways gets worse, right, with with new machines. Um, but they, they had a real pride in the quality of their goods and the, these new machines, uh, uh, the Jacquard loom, the gig mills, um, part of their being cheaper uh, for the producers was you could hire unskilled labor and, and this unskilled labor would also just produce much worse quality goods. And so this was a big rhetorical appeal that they would make uh, uh, to politicians and, and to other people to say, you know, we're, we're 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 not just you're not just hurting us. You're hurting the good. you know, these these are these could be really nice things. These could be they could last. They could be good. Um, they, they could be high quality. They could be notarized. You, you know, and here you're Trent, you're churning out these cheap socks. They break immediately. Um they deteriorate, they're they they're not they're nothing to be proud of, right? And and to me there's something there, right? There's something I think a lot of people, uh you know, I mean I've had a lot of jobs, and uh, uh, the ones that I feel more fondness towards are the ones where I, I felt I had some kind of goal beyond, you know, getting my rent paid, right? Uh, such as my job now, right? Teaching, you know, also rewarding. You know, you know, this is this also becomes a grounds for our exploitation. I know, but this is a, another thing that I'm trying to recover out of out of the Luddites is is a, a, some kind of creative fulfillment in your work, right? Something there was there was something behind it more than just 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 a wage and, and what you what you ate up your time with, um, some kind of investment in it that, that that the Luddites did actually have. Yeah, I mean, this seems like an interesting
0: not contrast exactly, but there's some divergence in even the kind of left-wing reinterpretation of the Luddites in the 20th century. I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but the Hobsbawm essay that you referred to earlier, which you know, he describes the Luddites as engaging in collective bargaining by riot, uh, you know, setting new terms of employment and uh, in, in economic terms, right? And Thompson, I read this chapter not quite remembering or having clear in my mind what the distinction between Thompson and Hobsbawm, if any, was on this question. But it seems like Thompson is really saying this needs to be understood as ultimately, if not necessarily in its origin, a political and even kind of an insurrectionary vision. Um, right? The Luddites, precisely by insisting on the point that you're making about the meaningfulness of work, um, they encounter the Incompatibility of that vision with not just uh, you know their particular workplaces and their particular employers, but the whole social formation, right? I mean, they they start doing what they're doing, and thousands of soldiers come to occupy Northern England, right? And they're living under like a military regime. The army in Northern England is as big as the armies that England is fielding in Spain or Belgium or wherever to fight Napoleon. I find myself somewhat more compelled by that account of the Luddites and a kind of more economistic one. But I'm curious what you think about. Is that a divergence Do you? How do you kind of interpret that for yourself?
1: I mean, I mean, for for Thompson, right? Like these these workers are not just workers. They're part of cultures, right? Uh, they're part of, I, I don't, I, I mean, I have a, you know, typical kind of intellectual discomfort with the, the, the sort of careless use of the word community, but, 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 you know, I think it's fair to say you could use it here, right? These are communities. These people have known each other for generations. There's also, um, I, I love the passage where he talks about all these other kinds of the, 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 the other aspects of these cultures, right? Like you have your, your weaver poets and your weaver botanists, right? Like these are people who they know, um, they don't know just know their trade, right? They, they they have an intimate connection to the land, to the people there, to traditions there. Um, many of the Luddite letters are coming from, uh, they'll sign, they'll, they'll write these threatening letters to politicians, they'll sign, you know, Ned Ludd, Sherwood Forest, right? And they're deliberately kind of calling on this very, much longer tradition, uh, 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 sort of, I don't know if it's antinomian, but but certainly a kind of uh, resistant Kind of a uh, of tradition that they were intimately aware of, and I
0: think is the Sherwood Forest
1: thing. It's it's a Robin Hood reference, is the idea? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, the, that was that's in the, the 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 kind of same location as as some of the major Luddite activity, right? And so they're they're really saying, you know, we're we are the Robin Hoods of our day, right? Um, so, um, and to me, that's this is like kind of the whole project of the book. Class struggle emerges not out of like a kind of economic, economistic paradigm necessarily, but it also emerges from existing cultural formations. Right. Um, And when capitalism does what it does, which is revolutionize things, you know, tear them up, that leads to forms of resistance, forms of struggle, uh, forms of antagonism. Um, that are, that rely upon some of these cultural formations that pre-exist. And in turn, these cultures are formed through these kinds of struggles, right? So, you know, what it means to be, uh, you know, a, a Yorkshireman or something is, is in part determined by the history of these struggles, right? And the kind of cultures of contestation, these are these, you know, generations of secret societies and things like that are, are like one kind of like really, you know, specific and, and localized example of that.
0: I love the example in this book, or the just the kind of aside that many british tra- of the older British trade unions, which are you know quite conventional organizations by the time Thompson is writing um lots of them have a kind of founding myth of a secret meeting in the field in this period
1: yeah yeah and and um it's uh I you know in, in, in I guess I guess some of these arguments are not necessarily like sort of popular or like not typically. You know, you're, 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 you, you know, you'll get a lot of people say, you know, all that solid melts into air and, you know, that's a good thing. Right. And now we can because now we clear things and now we can, you know, have our pristine worker struggles that lead to socialism. Right. And 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 abandon all the the, the, the sort of atavisms of the past. Um, and this is actually something that, that Thompson is also kind of arguing against. Right. I mean, he's 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 also making a very sort of in some ways idiosyncratic claim within Marxism. Ask any anthropologist, they'll say that all that solid melts into air is a terrible way to understand uh, the emergence of capitalist social relations in a in a pre-existing kind of cultural milieu. It's just not how it happens, right? There's no there's no sort of clearing the deck in that way. Um, you always have kind of pre-existing cultural strata. And to me, that's that's also kind of a, a sort of foundational point, right? Is that when you want to think about how you construct uh, Things like solid, you know, you know, practices like solidarity, but even larger things like um, creating new kinds of struggles, new kinds of unions, or maybe if you want to create some kind of more insurrectionary kind of formation, whatever it is, you don't think about creating it out of nothing. You, you you have to look at what actually is going on. There's, you know, because that one that's the terrain you're you're given. You know, the terrain of struggle is the you know is is history, right? Uh, But also because you're going to discover in those practices that people are already resisting and you're not going to ever start from a zero from nothing. You're actually going to start from a point where people have already started to do things and have already started to devise things. And it's not about inventing something. It's about um, kind of plugging into what's already going on and to understand it better. Do you want to say more about
0: just the arc of your book? Um, And other other episodes that you think are significant in eliminating this?
1: Yeah. um, I mean, one thing that I that I do is um, so the first chapter, I look at the 19th century, I look at Marx, I look at Morris, I look at the Luddites. So then I look at Taylorism. And, and one reason that Taylorism is interesting is that it's influential, not just in the state, in the U.S., where, where, where Taylor is working. It's influential uh, within, uh, within within socialist movement. It's influential in the Soviet Union. I'm also kind of looking at not just uh, struggles against capital, but also struggles that happen within um, uh, ideological struggles and also sometimes actual struggles within um, within 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 socialism, um, you know, people were not happy. There was a very interesting debate debate in Soviet Union over over Taylorism um, and whether you could uh, that that relates to larger debates. It could, can you just take technology off the shelf and just say, well, the government's socialist, so it's socialist now? Uh, or does does uh, uh, altering this kind of complete uh, reimagining of social relations? also entail reimagining the relationship of of human and machine. Uh, Some kind of fascinating debates there. Um, And so I I play that out a bit. um, And I look at also some kind of interesting figures, not always part of the Marxist tradition. Thorstein Veblen uh, was a very kind of uh, eccentric sociologist, I guess you would say, Uh, had a lot of weird ideas. And also, um, interestingly, uh, long-standing ties to the uh, IWW, which um, I think is probably one of the, you know, most significant uh, parts of the of the story of American Marxism. Uh, he was deaf He was uh, absolutely plugged in with them and kept tabs on them. He was not a joiner, but um, but they were they informed his ideas. Uh, uh, he tried to get them jobs at various times and got in trouble for it. Um, but uh, but um, uh, you have a lot of very interesting kind of ideas about how uh, technology might lead to uh, sort of uh, a different kind of social relationship, a post capitalist society. And that was really interesting because we have this conversation today um, about uh, automation, uh, you know, the, the the end of work. Um, what does that mean? Uh, will that lead to sort of a kind of barbarism? or will that is that actually the grounds of a kind of this a post-work utopia, a fully automated luxury communism? And I, you can find that debate happening uh, at, at moments, particularly at moments that are punctuated by a kind of heightened class struggle. So you might say the first, uh you know like 1910 to 19 into the 1930s there's a intense conversation around that in the post-war period you have uh some of the first uh uh th- that's the coinage of the term automation and I, I look at this in the third chapter um of uh, struggles around automation um you have uh the Johnson forest tendency uh decides they they're one of the first um, again, these are kind of, these are not like the main currents of, of the workers' movement. They're not even necessarily the main currents of Marxism, but they're also people that actually spotted a kind of problem or an issue and examined it in a very interesting way. Raya who's, uh she's a former secretary of Trotsky. She joins these kind of this kind of uh, American Trotskyist cell. And she, she's like, automation is this new thing. And she gets that because she's in conversation with workers. She has a worker's paper. They're talking about it. Um, she's also corresponding with philosophers. And so she says, Hey guys, you know, Herbert Marcuse, you know, about Hegel, we've been, we've been, writing about Hegel. What do you think about automation? And Marcuse is like, oh, well, you know, I read a bunch of Sartre, and, uh, yeah, automation's good. It's great. Uh, and, uh, so they have this kind of argument about it, right?
0: Um, and the Johnson Forest tendency I mean, can be positioned in relation to Thompson pretty easily right? as a Marxist humanist formation and CLR James and Thompson have some relationship. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's this kind of whole lineage, right, of this sort of um, uh, uh, this sort of. Uh, uh, Class struggle from below, you know, um, rather than go through the official organs, you know, the organs of the workers movement, the official institutions of unions and things like that are kind of reformist. Let's go to the rank and file. That's where the energy is. That's where the new knowledge is being generated. That's where where struggle is going to happen. Right. This is a this is a kind of thread. Um, I I mean, it's fair to say that I, I, I agree with 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 that kind of inclination. Um, and, and so this is part of the thread I trace. So in the third chapter, yeah, we're looking at those kind of struggles over automation into, um, and then how those break out into the sixties and seventies and connect to these kind of new left social movements. And there's a lot of very interesting work done, um, within the feminist movement, um, around new technology and automation and whether that will lead to kind of gender liberation. Um, actually, I mean, I'm not the best person to read on that. There's a lot of recent texts, um, uh, uh, that, are, that are really good on that. Um, Sophie Lewis is, uh, I don't necessarily agree with all, every with her account, but she she's, does great research on that. Um, but also in, in some of the civil rights movement, right? Automation is like, oh, this is a new problem, right? In fact, the, the debate, the arguments that people were having, eh, not so much now, but a few years ago when I started work on this, about like we're, we're at a point where there's not going to be jobs, you know, that was something that people were saying in the 30s. That was something that people were saying in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, if you listen to um, Aaron Benenev, he argues that it's in moments of where growth um, slows down that, that these problems, uh, that it's a way that it's a kind of mystification of the problem of capitalist growth, right, is to start focusing on machines. And that's something that happens in our day. Um, and then the last chapter, I look at a lot of digital technologies and uh, how they're being used to rationalize both work, not just work, but also everyday life, Right. Um, there's a lot of people that work on digital technologies that argue that you know one thing that they do is they turn a lot of the activity of everyday life into a kind of source of of value, right? So uh, you know a kind of working environment. You don't. I don't. You don't want to like. You don't want to push it too far by saying being on Facebook is, is work, but I think there is something work-like about it. Uh, it, it you know, there's, there's a way that these environments are rationalized, they produce value, they, they lock us in, they compel us to use them, right? Um, but also more directly technologies of work um, in, in gig work and, and sort of uh, algorithmic management kind of situations. Um, so, yeah. So what I want to do is look at both the, the, the technological side, but also the way, the moments where people have said, actually, technology is the problem. We need to kind of question it. We need to struggle against it. We need to critique it. Uh, and we need to organize against it and to, to recover those moments. Because I actually think, you know, we're in a moment where we, we're not at first principles, but we, need, we have a lot of work to do. Right. We have a lot of kind of building up of basic things. Um, answering basic questions. Uh, composing the class, right is is really our task. Um and to me, the you know looking at this history, I found that that fighting against technology, criticizing technology, uh, um, coming up with ways to to get around it, that actually was a way that, that that the class was composed at various moments and at important moments, and that is very a very different account than people who are saying, you know, we should just um, have the government run Walmart and Amazon for us. Um, just let's keep the technology how it is, and we'll just shift out the people in charge, and then our problems are solved. Um, I, I think that my problem with that is I don't see how we get. To that point, unless we've developed um, a, a much more uh, elaborated and sophisticated and, and experienced kind of uh, militant working class. Um, and I think that's only going to happen by people opposing machines. And in part, why I think that is because people already do. Um, this is what I was saying earlier. You know, you, you don't plug into a, a, a zero baseline. There's already things going on around you. And one thing that's going on is people hate the technology that they have to use at work. They hate when it changes. They hate new developments. They don't like it. Um, And they resist it uh, in a variety of ways. And I think that this is, you know, I think it's worth paying attention to. You mentioned a
0: few times the idea of class composition, uh, which I think is often understood in distinction to class formation, Thompson is I think generally seen as the kind of classic text on class formation um, It seems like it's possible to read him in another way somewhat. I'd just be curious to hear you talk about how you distinguish between or if you distinguish between class composition and class formation
1: I guess not so not so rigorously right I mean he's he's much more interested in the kind of cultural aspect and then the sort of technological aspect. Um, but there are moments, right? I think that are extremely useful. He's also interested in things like consciousness, right, where people like kind of have this realization of, oh, we're in the struggle together, and we have this common interest, and we should should advocate for it. I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that, but I think there's, you know, the the question of consciousness can can lead to some some uh, some dead ends, or has led to some dead ends as far as how do you organize. A workers' movement. You have. You also have a lot of moments. I mean, this what one of the great things about this book is so incredibly detailed. Uh, why this chapter is like a hundred pages long? Um, so um, is you have moments where he he identifies like this was a you know this was um, a, like a novel form of organization. So for, like one thing that he talks about early in the chapter um, is what, what he calls like a policy of diffusion. Right, which is what we might call like a decentralization, right? And of course, there's debates about this, but but it it served a very practical purpose at that moment in time, which was it kept people, it kept the struggle going so that if, so that one, you know, you you couldn't roll it all up at once, right? Because this is intense state crackdown, right? So you have to come up with like sort of techniques of security. And this was one, but it also meant that, you know, any one person goes down, you still can have a kind of uh, of a milieu of struggle. Right. And um, and in fact, this becomes important for him because even when the Luddites, I mean, they, they really only last a few years officially of going on these raids and breaking machines and writing these letters. It's basically over, you know, five year five or six years after it starts. But he argues that the the Um, Even when a lot of the leaders are are, are locked up or executed, you you know, some of these there's a residual kind of practice there, the residual forms of organization. Um, And to me, you know, he doesn't always talk about it in those terms. But there's these moments there that I kind of you can kind of detect that I think are useful. And I think you can kind of reframe, um, you know, when you're talking about class composition. you're talking in you're talking about two things you're talking about the technical composition right so how workers are arranged in a productive process how they use technology how technology kind of um, uh, you know becomes the, the the grounds for how they uh, are, are organized right but you're also talking about a political composition um, and I think that that Thompson is, is extremely useful uh, and extremely interesting uh, to read in that way and you don't always have to you know, Rather than thinking about worrying so much about do people think of themselves, have the self-conception of themselves as a militant worker um, in this way, you you know, that that can be useful. That's fine. But but he also has these moments where he, you know, to me, his emphasis on culture is really an emphasis on organization. Right. Culture becomes a kind of sedimented form of organization uh, um, is one way that I think about it. and, and I think that, to me, is, is part of, of what we might think of as this composition. These people didn't just think of themselves. They didn't just wake up and decide one day, oh, we're workers in a struggle. They, they organized themselves in various ways. They conducted practices, and they thought of themselves as, I'm a Luddite now. I'm, I'm doing these because I'm doing these things, not just because I had some sort of yeah. And they and they used the intellectual resources at hand. Tom Paine, William Cobbett, all these like uh, really interesting yeah. radical writers of the time, right? So, so there's not. Um, I think that a lot of times we focus on um, a kind of flipping of the switch, right? Or, or to use the internet parlance, right? Are, are you red pilled or, or black pilled or whatever it is? You know, the, this, these pharmaceutical metaphors, right? Where you consume something and like your your, your, your mind. Changes, right? Um, And and sure, I mean, I don't want to completely disavow that, right? We've probably all had moments like that, right? Um, These kind of uh, Pauline kind of epiphanies, right, Uh, where we're like, "Oh yeah, I get it," you know, "I'm a worker in a struggle" or something like that. Capitalism sucks, Um, but 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 uh, but that's not enough, right? And that's I think that that can be you can overemphasize that Um, when people start thinking that way. People start thinking that way for a reason. And one way they start breaking out of kind of easy ideologies and easy ways of doing things, the the normal course of business, is they've organized themselves in a different way. Um, And that, to me, um, I think, uh, you know, being a good materialist, uh, a good althusserian materialist, is you want to think about how social practice leads to ideas, Right So social practice becomes to me the, the the grounds for changes in consciousness. I don't know if, if Thompson always puts it in this way right um, but I think that because of this wealth of empirical detail, because of his really precise attention to um, you know, history from below, right he's kind of, this is his, his whole thing, right his whole project that that's, uh, has a wonderful uh, sort of tradition that, that comes after it. Um, you you know you have that material there and you can really get it out of out of this book
0: all right i'm out of questions do you have anything else you want to say
1: yeah i guess we said a lot um you know buy my book i guess when it comes out yeah does it have a, does it have a title it does have a title it's called breaking things at work so it'll look really cool uh when you have it on your bookshelf and people will be like, ooh, what's that
0: is there an image we could think of as like uh a, a, a modern equivalent of Enoch's hammer—the hammer that the name of the hammer that the Luddites used to smash the, the frames.
1: One kind of thing, actually, you saw me give a paper on this at the CSA. a uh, Kind of counterintuitive move that I make, but 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 I'm not the first to do it, or the only one to do it, is to think about um, a lot of technological cultures, such as hackers, um, as actually quite Luddish in their inspiration. So these are people you think, oh, they're hackers, they love computers, they love technology, um, they embrace it, You know the digital future, et cetera. But when you actually look at what hackers do and how they operate and how they organize themselves politically, it's all about opposing the latest technology because the, the latest developments of technology tend to be organized around surveillance. They tend to be organized around de-skilling users so you have less control over your technology. Um, you know, you you don't know how it works. You can't change how it works. Um, and these are these are things that are inimical to hacker cultures, which are based around skill, which are based around secrecy and anonymity. Um, and so maybe the flip phone would be the, uh, uh, the 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 thing there, because this is this is yeah, this is a kind of you're resisting the uh, what what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. Uh, you're, you're, you're rejecting it and you're finding ways to chip away at it, um, both culturally and technologically, you know, there, there's more traditional things as well. I mean, you, you have a lot of, uh, you know, Amazon struggles uh, that are, that in many ways resemble uh, older forms of shop floor struggles, um, but are, but are, are particularly have to deal with these kind of issues of uh, uh, surveillance and, and technological control through, through digital. Means. Well,
0: you know, also in, uh, in Emily Gindelsberger's book on the clock, I think it's what it was called, um, which is a kind of updated nickel and dime type. You know, reporter goes and works a bunch of shitty jobs, and one of them was in a in an Amazon warehouse. Um, and I remember there's significant discussion of how you do things like, uh, I mean, there's both the technologies the worker needs to use just to make the day livable. What kinds of shoes do you have to wear, and so on, because you're on your feet all day. But also there's a discussion of how you can uh, sneak headphones in. Because you're not allowed to listen to music or whatever While you're doing this incredibly monotonous job And workers have all of these little ways that they've figured out To, uh, you know, sew headphones into their hats And this kind of thing And also to fuck with the um, Like the device that is used to monitor you And keep track of your location And the location that you're supposed to go to To pick up the item or whatever, right? And obviously in the course of Spending any significant amount of time on this job You figure out where where the gaps and pores are in that system And then learn to exploit them
1: yeah, and and again, these these like little mundane things like sewing headphones into your hat, like they, you know, you could say, well, you know, okay, whatever, that's 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 small potatoes, or that's that's not that's not important as far as like we, we need to advocate for wages or or, or or you know, pass a law to help the minimum wage or something like that. But but I I really do think that these are actually the things that that, that are really worth paying attention to because you don't know these are these are these are just parts of a larger network of resistance. Um, And and once you see, you know, this is these are the people you want on your side, the people who've already mapped out, who understand the gaps in their workplace, who have decided uh, to come up with ways to resist it. So, you know, they're kind of they already, you know, are there, there's a kind of antagonism there that's being expressed, right? To bring it back to Morris, right? Who was like, well, how do you make worthy work, right? How do you make work that, that people enjoy or people are interested in? These are also practices where we're, where people are experimenting with that. What makes their work tolerable? What makes their work meaningful? What What makes things, you know, what are their, what desires do they have to, you know, to get something out of work? I mean, I think for most people, Just to be asked that question, right, just to consider that question of what do you want to get out of this besides barely enough money or not even enough money to live on um, is, uh, you know, I'm not even sure if people even ask that question all the time. Um, But I think it's super, super important, right? If we're thinking about uh, down the road, the kind of society we want to construct, the kinds of technologies we want to have, the way we want to organize things. Do we want it to look like Walmart? Do we want it to look like Amazon? Well, Maybe we should ask the people who are actually responsible for, you know, running that stuff. And it's not Jeff Bezos. It's not the Waltons, Right. It's the it's it's the people um, who are, you know, who are sewing those headphones into their hats. Right. Who are, um, you know, uh, uh, figuring out that if they damage a package, they they scrape up like 15 seconds of downtime. Right. Those are the people that I think are really important that we have to listen to about what kind of sort of um Technological future, uh, you know, a, a kind of as, you know we might we could have in store in the future, and I don't know that some of the big picture um, fully automated stuff. It doesn't. They don't strike me as people who've taken that seriously.
2: Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to our producer Sarah Hurd and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at blueberry dot com. That's dot com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. If you want to join in the conversation about the reading, sign up on Patreon and you'll be added to our Slack.